Evidence and Answers. Is morality relative or is it absolute? History shows that the strength and prosperity of a nation depends on the goodness and virtue of its citizens. A just society is also an ordered and free society. But how do we define good? How do we determine right from wrong? Is morality relative or is there a universal moral standard? And if so, well, what is that standard? What happens when a society or nation embrace moral relativism? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is an author, teacher, and scholar in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Join Pat today as he explains why God is essential to any moral system and the dangerous results that follow when cultures turn away from God's moral law. This entire study, along with other messages from Pat and other top Christian scholars, are available at evidenceandanswers.org. I'm sure you're going to find this show challenging and informative. So let's join Pat now as he presents part two of a message given this past November at the largest gathering of Christian educators in the Philippines. At a Christian leaders gathering, I asked the Christian leaders there in that country, do they agree with the one-child policy? And to that question, every hand went up in agreement. And I asked why, to which they replied to control our population. Now it appears this policy is working and the population is being controlled, but what are the long-term effects? Now if you could have only one child, what would you prefer, a boy or a girl? Well, most would say a boy to carry on the family name. Well, then what are we teaching our children? We are in essence saying boys are more valuable than girls. Second, if most families choose a boy, when these boys grow up, let me ask you a question. Who are they going to marry? You know, in order to find wives, they will need to go to another country. So what may appear to be good results in the short term may have devastating effects in the long term. Well, a third method is majority rules. What is right is determined by the majority. This is how democracies work. Now, this method provides several benefits, but a democracy works well only if the majority are good and virtuous. When the majority are good, a democracy can be quite successful. However, we still have not answered the question, how do we define good? Second, there are examples where the majority have been wrong. For example, in the United States, the majority voted to legalize abortion. Since Roe v. Wade in 1973, the United States has murdered over 50 million infants. You see, the majority can be wrong. And also, history has shown that reformation of a culture begins with a minority. We know that the slave trade was ended by the leadership of William Wilberforce and a small group of courageous people who spoke out against the enslavement of Africans and the practice of slavery in Europe and the United States. Well, a fourth method is culture determines right and wrong. Right and wrong are determined by the group or culture that one belongs to. 
Now, a basic flaw here is that cultures can embrace wrong values. What about cultures that teach polygamy? You know, there's a fundamentalist Mormon group there in West Texas where the man is being indicted for having married girls as young as 10 and 11 years old. Well, what about cultures that teach the inferiority of women? For example, there are parts of the world under Islamic rule that have oppressive teachings and practices towards women. For example, the Quran teaches in chapter 4, men are the maintainers of women because Allah has made some of them to excel others and because they spend out of their property. The good women are therefore obedient, guarding the unseen as Allah has guarded. And as to those on whose part you fear desertion, admonish them and leave them alone in the sleeping places and beat them. Then if they obey you, do not seek a way against them. Surely Allah is high, Allah is great. That is why in several of these countries, the physical abuse of women by men, their husbands or their brothers or their fathers is allowed. The Hadith, which records the sayings of Muhammad, the second most important book in Islam, states, The Prophet said, Isn't the witness of a woman equal to half that of a man? The woman said, Yes. And he said, This is because of the deficiency of a woman's mind. And so therefore, in Islamic countries where there is Sharia law, indeed the woman does not have equal rights to that of a man, as taught in the Quran, as practiced by Muhammad and in the Hadith. Well, should we simply agree that since this is part of the culture, we should accept it as right? Or should we stand against it and fight for the equality of women? Third, if each culture is right, how do we determine right when cultures come into conflict? Now, most of these systems, although they have some benefits, have some serious shortcomings. Without God or an objective universal moral standard, we eventually end up with a system of moral relativism. Moral relativism teaches, I am the measure. What is right is determined by each individual. And what is right for me may be wrong for another, but no one has the right to judge another person's actions as right or wrong. Now this represents the worst of all systems. What is right for one individual may be cruel to another. If this were in place, society would be rendered inoperable. If everyone did as they pleased, there would be chaos. And we see this in the book of Judges. The final chapters ends with the disturbing story of a Levite priest and his concubine. Now at this time, the nation of Israel had degraded in sin and lawlessness filled the land. And here the Levite priest is traveling through the country with his concubine. Now, what is a Levite priest? Someone who is supposed to be serving in the very temple of Jerusalem, in the holiest place in all the land of Israel, doing, running around with a concubine. And as he's traveling through the country, he spent the night with his concubine in the city of Gibeah. And in the night, the men of the city 
sought to molest this Levite priest. Well, not wanting to be raped, this courageous man, haha, throws his concubine to the mob and they rape her all night long. Now, the next day, he finds her barely alive lying on the steps of the house and the priest chops her up into 12 pieces and sends it to all the tribes of Israel calling them to war and a civil war breaks out nearly wiping out the tribe of Benjamin and the book of Judges ends in chapter 1 on a very disturbing note it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes here's just an example of the destructive conclusion of moral relativity now these systems except for the last one have some benefits but they still fail to provide a basis for morality they still do not define good and evil we still need an absolute objective and universal moral system these systems are inadequate to provide a basis for morality and fail to answer key questions needed first why are human beings of value and why is their survival the greatest good you see if God does not exist we are simply accidents in the universe and if we are merely accidents what makes our standard and our survival the greatest good for ultimately the universe will die and in the end mankind faces annihilation and what was the ultimate purpose for our existence it is ultimately meaningless in a radio debate I had with an atheist he stated I made the case that without God our existence is ultimately meaningless for the universe will end and one day mankind shall be annihilated and extinct and in the end it all ends in annihilation and the only hope that we have to look forward to is our extinction and annihilation and so what difference did it ever make that we were ever here and I said ultimately our lives are insignificant and meaningless and this atheist responded and said well that's just your opinion and I replied no I'm simply repeating what you atheists have been stating for decades and he said well give me an example and I said well Bertrand Russell he states man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving that his origin his growth his hopes and fears his love and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms you see we're simply an accident here he goes on to state that no fire no heroism no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave that all the labors of the ages all the devotion all the inspiration all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins why is man's survival the greatest good if there is no ultimate purpose for his existence all the achievements of the scientists to improve the quality of life upon the earth 
ends in annihilation with the end of the universe and the end of mankind. All that the politician fights for, for justice and the freedom of all people, ends in extinction with the annihilation and the end of our universe and mankind. All that we strive for, that we achieve, that we love, that we invest our lives into, all end in annihilation. If our ultimate end is extinction, why is our survival then the greatest good? Especially if there is no ultimate purpose for our existence and it all ends in extinction. Second, if our existence is ultimately meaningless, then ethics without God is ultimately meaningless. Because it doesn't matter how one lives, whether like Mother Teresa or Adolf Hitler, we all come to the same end. Now, I'm not saying that those who do not believe in God cannot live moral lives. I have many atheist friends who live, quote, moral lives. But what I'm saying is there is no basis for morality or living moral lives. Atheists such as Bertrand Russell, David Hume, and Nietzsche admitted without God life is meaningless and morality is ultimately meaningless. Dr. William Provine, biology professor at Cornell University, states these haunting words that if atheism is true, it ultimately means, quote, no life after death, no absolute foundation for right and wrong, no ultimate meaning for life, no free will. Now Solomon, centuries ago, in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, stated the same thing. After turning away from God and indulging in all the pleasures of life, he ended up concluding in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. Solomon, after turning away from God, realized morality is meaningless. There is no God, no life after death, and no purpose for our existence. Our lives are ultimately meaningless in how we live, whether moral or, quote, immoral, is ultimately meaningless because we all, man and beast, come to the same end. Third, if God does not exist, it is not possible to define objective good and evil. If something is objectively evil, there is an absolute standard of good by which we are measuring it by. Well, where does that standard of good come from? And what is that standard? We all appeal to a universal moral law when we call something evil. And if God does not exist, it is not possible to condemn any action like war, genocide, or racial prejudice, or murder as objectively evil. But we judge acts as good or evil all the time. This is the dilemma C.S. Lewis, the great author of the Chronicles of Narnia, a man who was an atheist and came to Christ later in his life. This was his great dilemma, which eventually 
led him to believe in God and later in Jesus Christ. And he stated this, As an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe to when I called it unjust? Fourth, we regularly appeal to universal moral standard of right and wrong. Our experience tells us there is a universal moral law that supersedes all governments, cultures, and individuals. We identify injustice every day. How do we know what is unjust unless we know what is objectively just? And finally, how do we measure progress? How do we know that we as a society are getting better unless there is a best? How do we know if laws are more just or fairer or more humane unless there is a perfect standard which we are moving closer to? If God does not exist, there is no basis for morality. However, God does exist. We appeal to a moral law, and a moral law points to a moral lawgiver whose laws are absolute, objective, and universal. God provides the basis for an absolute, objective, moral standard. God as creator has established His moral law code. And since God exists, objective moral values exist. Something is good or evil independently of whether anyone believes it or not. Second, right and wrong are rooted in God's nature. God is loving, just, and holy, and His law is a reflection of His character. And God's law is summarized in the two great commandments, Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Third, God's laws are universal and absolute. They apply to all people, even those who do not believe in God and reject His law. Fourth, God's law is unchanging. How we apply them may change, but the principles themselves do not change. Murder was wrong a thousand years ago and continues to be wrong this day. Adultery was wrong a thousand years ago and continues to be wrong to this day. Fifth, God's laws are prescriptive, not descriptive. In other words, they do not describe how things are. They prescribe how things should be and must be. Six, God's laws are knowable. We're created in the image of God to know God and to live according to truth and the moral law of God which He established. And in fact, Romans chapter 2 states that the moral law of God is written upon our hearts and sealed in our conscience. And finally, everyone will be judged by God's law. Evil will be judged. Righteousness will be rewarded. Good shall triumph over evil. And we shall see that indeed we live in a moral universe ruled by a sovereign and good and just creator.
the moral lives we live then, the sacrifices that we make have an eternal consequence. Well, what are some life applications we can draw from our message today? Well, first, churches and Christian schools must be able to present compelling reasons for the existence of God and that He has established His moral law for us to follow. Second, churches and Christian education institutions must not only teach students skills in academics, but also build character in the lives of their students. Character development must be an integral part of a student's education. It is dangerous to teach a student information and skills without giving him or her a moral compass to guide them in the proper use of that information. Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher, stated that he said, I'm not afraid of the common criminal, for he'll do little harm to society, but what I am afraid of is the acute rascal. Now, not a cute rascal, but an acute rascal, one who has tremendous knowledge and skill, but does not have the moral guidelines upon which that will guide him to the proper use of the intelligence and skill which he has. It is the acute rascal who will do great harm to any culture or society. Aristotle said, that's the one that I am afraid of. And many of our schools and institutions of learning in the West are raising up a generation of acute rascals. Men and women with tremendous intelligence, knowledge, and skills, but with no moral compass, no moral guidelines upon which how to use their great intelligence, knowledge, and skills. Therefore, you're going to have guys who do tremendous things on the internet, but use it for selfish reasons and create evil. We need to teach students about God's moral law but also why it provides the only basis for right and wrong. Third, churches and Christian schools must provide the role models that students can emulate. The character of the parent, the pastor, and teacher is vital in Christian education. The Apostle Paul stated to his disciples, Follow me as I follow Christ. And next to Christ and the parent, the pastor and the school teacher provide the most powerful example of character a young person will ever know. If we have over 1,500 people here at this conference, if I took a survey of who was the most influential person in your life, the vast majority of you would say it was either your parents or someone close to your aunt or your uncle or one of your teachers. Therefore, as teachers, as pastors, as Christian leaders, we must all grow and develop not only in our knowledge and understanding of God's Word and the fields that we study, but also we must develop in our character and godliness as well. Well, the strength of a nation is tied to the moral goodness of its people. A society cannot have freedom and prosperity without morality 
and a society cannot have a basis for morality without God. A good society is a just, virtuous, and moral society, and belief in God provides the basis of a strong moral code that leads to the building of a strong and prosperous nation. And it is the calling of the church and Christian schools all over this great nation to continue to promote and defend God's moral law that will guide this country and this upcoming generation, that this country may remain a good and just and prosperous and free nation. Thank you very much. God bless you. you were challenged and inspired by Pat's message. If you missed any part of this study, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to the entire message and enjoy other great resources right there on the site. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by Pat's teaching, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Join us again each week right here for more Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers.